BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Picture two identical houses, same number of bedrooms, same number of bathrooms, right next to each other on the same block. In most states, homeowners in those houses would pay similar property taxes. But here in California, identical homes can have wildly different tax bills. What is your property tax bill? Uh, I think it was like 1800 I pay about 13000 in property taxes. Yeah, I think I would move to Nebraska. <laughs> People here pay property taxes based on the purchase price of their home rather than what that home is worth today. And that's because of Proposition 13, which is marking its 40th anniversary this year. Back in 1978, homeowners saw their property tax bills spiking and soaring every year. They wanted some stability. And anti-tax crusader Howard Jarvis proposed locking in property taxes. He often said, our freedom depends on four words. Government must be limited. Now we are watching you. It is your responsibility to make Proposition 13 work by cutting the barrels of lard out of the government budget. When tax revenues dropped in California, that meant less money for things like libraries, schools, and road repair. 40 years later, there's still a simmering debate over just what Prop 13, sometimes called the tax revolt of the 1970s, has meant for California. Today, we're gonna spend our whole show exploring its impact on one block in one neighborhood by talking to newcomers and longtime residents. When I look at the way things have gone down and some people had to sell to leave and go other places to live, you know, I'm doing good to still be sitting here since 1956. We'll hear from homeowners and renters, librarians and parents, about how they think Prop 13 has affected their lives and what it's meant for the California dream. California dream is to expose our children to arts, to culture, to music to have high-quality libraries, to have communities that are safe. And we have lost a lot of that. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. I'm standing on a quiet tree-lined street here in North Oakland. It's got some speed bumps on it to slow the traffic down. And it's right next to an old brick library. It's one of the oldest libraries in the city of Oakland. Uh, This block is a mix of single-family homes and a couple of apartment buildings. Most of the homes are pretty small, two or three bedrooms. Some of them have bars on the doors and windows. Some of them have fresh coats of paint and some new landscaping in the front yards. When Proposition 13 passed back in the 1970s, this was a largely working-class African-American neighborhood. And now, 
more middle and upper middle class white folks are moving in. We decided to spend a few months reporting on how Prop 13 has affected this neighborhood, this block specifically, part of a collaboration with public media organizations around the state looking at the California dream. Because for so many Californians, that dream has meant access to public schools, safe communities to live in, and the ability to buy a home. Some homeowners on this block have been here a long time, and because of Prop 13, they pay pretty low taxes compared to the folks who've moved in more recently. People like Jazz Joel. I'm standing in front of her house right now. It's uh, painted a robin's egg blue color. It's got a new roof. It's got a couple of skylights in the roof, a new fence. And we're going to go inside to meet Jazz now with reporter Matt Levin of the nonprofit journalism outlet Cal Matters. It's a really nice kitchen. Thanks. I never use it. <laughs> bathroom, <laughs> my room, and bathroom. This house means a lot to Jazz. And not just because it's got that skylight and a renovated kitchen and a pretty big backyard. Jazz grew up in a family of seven in Sacramento with parents making 35 grand a year. She got a job with the tech company Salesforce because she knew a six-figure salary was her only ticket to buying a home in the Bay Area. But the search was still tough. Well, I looked for about a year. I would say I bid on about 10 houses, and I was outbid all cash almost every time. Jazz finally landed this house in North Oakland two years ago. It was pricey, $850,000. And on top of her mortgage, there was the hefty property tax bill. I was expecting it, but I wasn't expecting how much it would be, I guess. Jazz paid nearly $13,000 in property taxes last year, way more than her neighbor around the corner. Don Wanger cleans up the backyard of the duplex he owns just 300 feet from Jazz's place. So I pruned off all of that jasmine vine and then pruned off all of the boughs overhanging my yard from my neighbor's tree. And Don bought the property the in 2002 for 365 grand. But when he checked Zillow recently... So it was between 850 and 920. My mouth fell open. I was shocked. But even though his duplex is worth about the same amount as Jazz's new house, Don pays just over half of what Jazz pays in property taxes. Under Prop 13, homeowners pay property taxes based on the price when they bought their home, not what it's currently worth. And Don's not the only person getting a pretty sweet discount from Prop 13 on this block. There are longtime homeowners with property taxes of barely $1,000. The house next to me is a mirror image. And if he bought it today, he'd be paying taxes on, you know, $900,000, and I'm paying taxes on $365,000. So that seems very unfair. But at the same time... Yeah, I don't want my tax to go up. In this gentrifying part of Oakland, a lot of the benefit of Prop 13 goes to older people of color who bought in the 70s and 80s. But across the state, Prop 13 means richer, often white homeowners are getting the most benefit. Someone is paying a lot more than another for getting the same services from government agencies. It's not fair. It's clearly not fair. Stephanie Norlinger sits in the backyard of her home in an upper-middle-class part of Baldwin Hills, a neighborhood of L.A. She bought the house in 1988 for $170,000. The street was full of uh, liquid amber trees in the fall, and they looked beautiful. So I looked at the house, and I could afford it, and decided to purchase it. She thought it was just wrong she was paying more in property taxes than people who bought when the market was cheaper, especially people who were richer than she was. Stephanie's an attorney, so after she got her first property tax bill, she did what lawyers do. 
She sued, arguing that Prop 13 was unconstitutional. In number 90-1912, Stephanie Nordlinger against Kenneth Hahn. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Her case went all the way to the Supreme Court. This is called equal protection of the laws, which the U.S. Supreme Court failed to uh, implement, but uh, it is equal protection of the laws. <laughs> we, we got one judge on that, the one justice on that. Stephanie lost 8 to 1. The Supreme Court basically said that Prop 13 might be bad policy, but it wasn't unconstitutional. Even though it provokes some distaste on one's part and may appear to be unwise and unlikely ever to be reconsidered or repealed by ordinary democratic processes, we cannot conclude that it is prohibited by the federal constitution. Thirty years later, Stephanie could be the poster child for Prop 13. She's a senior citizen living mostly on savings, and she saves a ton of money on her property taxes. Her house is worth around $900,000, and her tax bill is $3,400. But Stephanie still doesn't like Prop 13. The roads, the schools, she says they were better before Prop 13 passed. When I was a kid, California was on the top. Some parts of California are perfect and very nice and, you know, as good as anything in the world. But other parts of California are just not what they should be. She says she'd happily pay more to get back to a government that did more. For The California Report, I'm Matt Levin in North Oakland. You're listening to a special edition of The California Report magazine. On this week's show, we're looking at Prop 13, the tax revolt of the 1970s. We're talking about how it's affected Californians across the state, but focusing in on the experiences of neighbors who live on one block in North Oakland. The neighborhood school here is still feeling the effects of Prop 13, which was passed 40 years ago. We're going to meet one family now who's had to make a hard choice about where to send their son to school. The California Report's education reporter Vanessa Rancaño brings us their story. Sarah and Charles Woodson moved onto this middle-class North Oakland block because of a connection. A friend of a friend was renting out the lower half of his duplex. It's the only way they could afford to live in the Bay Area, especially with a dog and a kid. Their son Laszlo was just a baby when they moved in, but Sarah says their new neighbors already had questions about his education. What are you going to do when it comes time to enroll in elementary school? Sarah and Charles didn't think too much of it until Laszlo turned four, and they couldn't avoid the question. We talked a lot about public schools in Oakland, what our options were. They were loaded conversations. Charles grew up in Oakland and went to a public elementary school here. He has bad memories. It was the 80s, a few years after Proposition 13 passed. I learned how to survive, but I can't tell you that I learned how to read and write and do arithmetic. We didn't have any money. Michael Kirst is president of the State Board of Education. He was president back when Prop 13 passed in 1978, too. He says before Prop 13, school districts were funded mostly by local property taxes. When Prop 13 slashed property tax revenue... The state said, well, we've got to bail out the local school districts. They've got to open, you know. But the state couldn't make up all the lost funding. They immediately dropped summer schools and adult education. Then they cut vocational education, counseling. They cut assistant principals, librarians, cut sports. Oh, they cut the band! Today, Charles Woodson sees an echo of his school days in this North Oakland neighborhood's elementary, Sankofa Academy. Only about 10% of students there meet state math and English standards. His wife, Sarah, decided to tour the school anyway. She loved the beautiful library, but there was no librarian. She talked to a teacher who sounded frustrated and overwhelmed. The teacher she liked 
They said, oh, well, we don't actually know if we're going to be here next year. So and then it turned out that there's no principal. They hadn't had a principal all year. So it just was sort of, you know, strike after strike after strike. It felt familiar. Not for Sarah. She grew up in the suburbs of northern Virginia. The school bus pulled up to the end of your driveway. You got on. You went to this local public school. It was a good school with lots of supplies, good teachers, dedicated teachers. Plenty of of money seemed to be going around. By the late 80s, Virginia was spending more per student than California. So were lots of other states. California had been a top spending state when it came to education. But Prop 13 changed that. After Sarah toured her local school, she and the other parents stood around on the front steps with crinkled brows. You can tell they're all kind of trying to act like they're really considering the school, but you can tell that they're really not. And they're thinking, oh my gosh, what are our options now? There's a lot more going on here than Prop 13. There's segregation by race and class, a history of financial mismanagement and turnover in this district. But education spending in California has never really recovered from Prop 13. We now rank near the bottom of all states in spending. Education Board President Michael Kirst says Prop 13 has had other effects, too. I think it contributed to a loss of confidence in public education. As funding shifted to the state, so did control. People lost a feeling of ownership of their schools. They were sort of out of control, ruled by the people up there in Sacramento. In the end, Sarah and Charles decided to send Laszlo to a private school. They got some help paying for it. Laszlo, hey, hi. Ready to go home? He has an arts teacher. He has a Spanish teacher. He has, I mean, these are all things that he's just going to get as part of his regular curriculum. There's going to be cookies at the winter college. We made them today. Sarah and Charles know their choice means less money for their local public schools. I mean, I for sure feel guilt. I mean, I, I love this community. I want to invest in this community. I want to fully be a part of this community. They say they wish they could feel confident sending their son to the neighborhood school. And they want that school to get the resources it needs. You know, it unfortunately turned into this very emotional thing. I mean, I think you have this little child and you want to give them the best experience and the best start to their schooling career. These days, it's a tough choice a lot of Oakland parents have been making. For The California Report, I'm Vanessa Rancaño in North Oakland. And actually, Vanessa lives in this neighborhood, on the very block where we've been telling these stories about Prop 13. And we're here in Vanessa's living room because we decided to bring together some of the neighbors on the block for a little brunch and conversation. Ken! Hello! Good morning. Hi, Michelle. I'm Sasha. So nice to meet you. Thank you for coming. Hi, Hi, Ken. So let's get started. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So we all sit around Vanessa's big oak dining room table to dig into something that people usually don't like to talk about. Money. How much they paid for their house. And how much they pay in property taxes. To get them warmed up, I first ask everybody to introduce themselves and say how long they've lived in the neighborhood. Hi, I'm Michelle Krasowski. I've been in the neighborhood since February 2017. I'm a librarian specialist in support of adult services for the Contra Costa County Library System, and I am a renter in my apartment. My name is Ken Wilkins. I purchased a house in North Oakland in 1976. And can you tell us what you paid for your house? It's embarrassing for everybody. <laughs> now I paid $18,500 for the house. Hi, my name is Jazz Joel. I am a native Californian. I grew up in Sacramento and moved to the area uh, to go to UC Berkeley 
previously worked in education policy, and right now I work in tech at uh, Salesforce. I'm Vanessa Rancaño. I'm KQED's education reporter. I've lived here just about a year, and I rent. And the last guest at the table is not a neighbor, but he knows a lot about how Prop 13 has affected Oakland. He was the assistant city manager in Oakland when the measure passed, and he became city manager three years later. I'm Henry Gardner. I have been in Oakland since 1971. I rented the first five and a half years. I've been a homeowner ever since, and I've been in my present home for 35 years. And I am a major beneficiary of Proposition 13, which has hurt the city tremendously. Back in 1978, nearly two-thirds of California voters supported Prop 13. Only three counties in the whole state voted against it. And even though it passed here in Alameda County, it didn't win in the city of Oakland. How aware were people when they went to the ballot box of what well, they were weighing? I was not then, nor am I now, a clairvoyant. But the record is complete. We said in unmistakable terms, in Oakland, that's one of the reasons Prop 13 did not pass in Oakland. We went from neighborhood to neighborhood. We said this library will close and will never reopen. We said these fire stations will close and they will never reopen. We said all of that. And here we are today. And did you vote for Prop 13, Ken? I think I did. But I really didn't think it out really well. I think there there should have been some other compromise, like uh, businesses should not have had that break at all. But I actually, I am happy to be under Prop 13. What What is your property tax bill? Uh, I think it was like 1800 if Prop 13 were repealed, just theoretically, but if but if it were, and you suddenly had to pay, like what Jazz is paying in her property taxes, which is what? what? I pay about 13000 in property taxes. Yeah, I think I would move to Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> Ken's joking, but only kind of. Some California seniors might not be able to stay in their houses if they had to pay market rate property taxes. Across the table, Michelle says... As a renter, she feels like Prop 13 affects her housing options, too. For me personally, hearing as a renter and hearing what my landlord paid for his house and is paying in property taxes and knowing how much I pay for rent and how much little I have at the end of the month and what the mathematical difference is between all of those factors, it's shocking to me. I feel like I'm not... Like, he's, he's getting a lot out of this, and I'm getting a lot sucked out of me in my life. <laughs> Sitting next to Michelle, Jazz looks empathetic. She used to rent in Oakland, but now she's a homeowner. We visited her house at the top of the show. She says she understands why it's important to pay property taxes to fund critical services in California, like public education. I feel very indebted, and I feel much more willing to pay my fair share of taxes because I understand that my coming up out of poverty was in large part because of other people's tax dollars. Jazz got a needs-based scholarship to UC Berkeley. She says that degree helped her to get where she could buy a house today. I've had people tell me before, like, you kind of are the American dream. Like, I, my parents were immigrants. I grew up, like, a family of seven on like, you know, $35,000 income. And now I'm a family of one with like 
I don't know how many times that income. I do think I'm very lucky, but I also feel like it shouldn't be this hard. I like the job I have now, but I mean, you know, would I be a teacher if a te being a teacher paid the same amount? In 1976, a teacher working in the Oakland Unified School District, family of four, somebody staying home, taking care of the kids, could have bought one of these houses. Henry saying that makes my jaw drop. I am married to a public school teacher and buying a home in Oakland today on that salary is unfathomable. My family hasn't done it and I'm not sure what it's going to take to help us break into the market. And it's not just teachers and public radio reporters, artists, chefs, childcare providers, janitors, librarians like Michelle. We are all grappling with whether the California dream is still alive. So's Henry. Oakland's former city manager. California dream is to expose our children to arts, to culture, to music, to have high quality libraries, to have communities that are safe. Those are all California dreams. It's not just ownership. It's an opportunity to advance. And we have lost a lot of that. Not all of it's due to Prop 13, but a lot of it is. I'd like to say that I am a civil servant. I'm here to serve the public and my community. I'm invested in improving people's quality of life, especially for people like me who are government workers. I can't negotiate a higher salary. I have a salary cap and there's no, there's no rent cap. There's no home sales cap. So I, in this particular climate, I'll never be able to own a home. And that's really sad to me as somebody who really cares about the people around me. Here is the real problem with Proposition 13. It has negatively impacted homeowners and renters far more than it's impacted commercial properties. Many of these big commercial properties are paying the same tax they paid in 1976. There is an initiative that has qualified for the 2020 ballot I've been arguing for this for 30 years. It's called a split roll tax. It would adjust the property tax, uh, which will raise a ton of money. And that money needs to be channeled back to first public education and then basic public services. Vanessa, our education reporter, who's been interviewing all these neighbors for the last few months and is now hosting them at her dining room table, chimes in. I'm just curious to know, since... I did the, the weird thing of knocking on a bunch of doors and asking strangers to, to talk to me about their personal life and how much they pay to live here. Um, why you all decided to participate? Uh, Vanessa asked me, so I said, yes, she's no, my neighbor. Not true, Ken. You said no. <laughs> you said no until... I thought about it. Actually, let me back up. I, I, I gave some thought. I did say no. Yeah. But I gave some thought and... Uh, <laughs> but you helped me a lot from the beginning. Michelle, how is this for you? Or why did you decide to let um, us hear your, your deepest secrets and financial background? I feel like I don't have a voice very often um, because of the industries that I am a part of and because um, I am a woman. And I just really appreciated the opportunity to have a voice in the discussion. So thank you. Well, thanks to all of you. This has been really illuminating and really fun. And thank you all for coming and, you know, opening up your lives to us, your financial 
uh, particulars and for really being honest with each other and, and so respectful with each other in the conversation, too. I think we hear a lot about how neighbors are maybe very polarized around issues like gentrification or when you bought your home. And I think it's just really nice to still feel that there is some sense of community um, on this block and that people really do seem to care about the future of this neighborhood. So thank you. We've been talking today about Proposition 13 and how it's shaped the California dream, owning a home, going to a good school, finding refuge and opportunity here. That's all part of the dream. So we're going to close our show today with a letter from Terry Curtis, a listener who lives in Calistoga. As part of our series, Letter to My California Dreamer, we've been asking you to write a letter to the first person in your family to come to California with a dream. And Terry's letter is to his grandfather. Dear Grandpa Henry, I love the stories you told me about your father, Jürgen. In 1904, he sailed from Bogor, Denmark, to California as captain of a sailing ship and decided to stay. In 1906, you and the rest of the family followed in groups by steamer to Ellis Island and then by train to a Danish ghetto in the San Antonio neighborhood in Oakland, California. When you were eligible for citizenship, you worked in a machine shop Most of the employees were Danes named Peterson, and like you, many had the name Christian. Your given name was Christian Henry Axel Peterson. This meant paydays were a challenge, since there were many checks for Christian Peterson. You wanted to be an American, and a Californian, not an immigrant. So you worked at losing your accent. At naturalization, you changed your name to Henry Christian Curtis after the character Henry Curtis in King Solomon's Mines, the very novel you taught yourself English with by reading and reciting it. Then the Great Depression hit hard. You and Grandma lost your house in Oakland. So every summer you sailed to Alaska to work at a fish cannery, while Grandma and your kids lived with her sister in Sebastopol. The California dream seemed lost. But World War II brought work. You built submarines at Mare Island. Growing up in Santa Rosa in the 50s, I spent summers with you. You taught me to work. You wanted me to study and become middle class. Part of your California dream was that your grandchildren would have a better life. So I attended UC Santa Barbara and law school at the University of Chicago. I was there during the demonstrations of 1968 You couldn't understand my life then, but you let me know that you loved me. Long hair, beard, crazy friends and all. By the standards of your family on the island of Bogur, I have prospered. I became an attorney and a university professor. In a way, I fulfilled your dream, but I cannot help but worry about my grandchildren's lives in California. My children will not likely earn what I have They struggle to afford housing and send their children to college. Like you, I dream of a good life for my grandchildren. You and I lived the California dream. 
Now I wonder what their lives will be like if they stay here. Love, Terry. Terry Curtis from Calistoga, sharing his letter to his grandpa, Henry. And that's our show for today. I'm Sasha Coca. If you missed any part of today's show, you can subscribe to our podcast, California Report Magazine. Just look for the bear wearing earbuds. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. The California Dream Collaboration includes KPBS, KPCC, Capital Public Radio, and Cal Matters. The series editor is Adrian Hill. The California Report magazine is directed by Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller with additional engineering from Katie McMurrin. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. David Marks is our online producer and our intern is Marisol Medina Cadena. The California Report's editorial team includes Bianca Taylor, Julia Scott, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from College Futures Foundation. More graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.